Alright, 2 Thessalonians 2. It says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow by the, with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that will serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed in the truth but have delighted in the wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first roots to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of the Lord. Evening, everyone. Great to see you. Great to open up 2 Thessalonians with you again. Uh, there's an outline on the back of your handouts, so if you want to take notes, that might be helpful, particularly as it's warm. It's a tricky passage, and it's a warm night, so I'm going to pray for God to help us to focus and concentrate uh, on His words for His sake. Let's pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for all of the Bible, for all of your word, which is true in its entirety. And Lord, we pray now for clarity of mind and that you'll work in us by your Holy Spirit to help us to know what you want us to know tonight and then have the will to put it into practice for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to think about Satan a little bit. And we're going to think about the return of Jesus, also known as the Day of the Lord. Paul explains to his hearers in Thessalonica that the reason they can be sure that Jesus hasn't returned yet is because Satan is still at work amongst them. That's the reason Paul gives. And I can assure you that Satan is still at work amongst us as well, as alarming as that might sound. And we're right to believe that Jesus is far, far, far more powerful than Satan. There's not a cosmic arm wrestle between Satan and Jesus. Jesus is ultimately powerful, intimately powerful, intimately, infinitely powerful. But I also believe that we underestimate the work of the devil in our lives, our families' lives, 
and the life of our church. After all, Satan's greatest trick is to convince people that he does not exist. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think about the screw tape letters and pick it up again. Who's read the screw tape letters? Screw tape letters, sorry? Top five. Top five. Um, written by a famous Christian author, C.S. Lewis, during the Second World War in 1942, and it's a defence of the Christian faith written from the perspective of a hypothetical senior devil talking to a junior devil named Wormwood. And Wormwood is charged with the task of leading one of God's people astray, of distracting him with other things. And it's a really fascinating read and it helps us give us an insight into how Satan works or tries to work in our lives. So I I recommend, and Ben commends, uh, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and anything really written by C.S. Lewis. Well, how does our hope-shaped future, which we've been thinking about our hope-shaped lives, how does a hope-shaped future give us a healthy respect for the devil without giving us a worrying concern about the devil. Let's find out. Chapter 2, keep your Bibles open. Chapter 2 starts with a church full of people who are being told lies about the coming of Jesus and it's concerning them. They're worried. Look again at verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul's writing to them to to assure them the day of the Lord has not yet come. They didn't miss it or anything like that. In uh, 1 Thessalonians, they had a fear that their friends who had fallen asleep, who died, had missed out on the coming of the Lord. But Paul assures them, no, no, no. You haven't missed out, and they haven't missed out. It's false teaching that's going around. He, didn't, he's, he wants to assure them it's not like you were out in the field or in the toilet and Jesus came and you missed it. He hasn't come yet. Paul assures them it's impossible, and he goes on to tell them why. And the reason he gives is because the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. That's the reason he gives. So who or what is this man of lawlessness? Well, let's look at verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, the day of the Lord, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Now, we don't know exactly what Paul has told them, these things that he told them. Uh, The Thessalonians seem to have some insight into what's going on. For us, this is a bit confusing. What's going on here? What rebellion? What man of lawlessness? When will he come? What's it going to look like? And for that very reason, because this passage is so foreign to us and confusing sounding we must approach this passage with great humility. We must come to it, as some others haven't in the past, with great humility and try to work it out as the best we can, knowing that this, this is a tricky this is a tricky part of Scripture. There's a famous theologian and preacher named Dr. Leon Morris, and he describes the passage in this way. 
This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings, and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. He's pretty bright, Leo Morris, and he thinks this is really tricky. So this is a really tricky passage. So we've got to be humble about it. We can't kind of go, oh, this is definitely what it means. 100%, we need to, have, we need to be humble. There's been many speculations as to what the supposed rebellion is and will occur, what it will look like, how long it will last, and when the day of the Lord will finally come. The most common, I think, misconception is the premillennialist view that Satan will be revealed and reign for a thousand years, a thousand years of satanic terror, and then Jesus will finally come back. And I hope to show you from this passage that this theory doesn't hold water. Now, there's four names or titles given to the man of lawlessness in verses three or four, three and four. And John refers to him as the Antichrist. We're going to come back to that in a moment. The first name in our passage is the lawless one. This man of lawlessness is lawless. He's opposed to the law. The second name or title we're given is the one doomed to destruction or the son of destruction. Um, if hope is our future, destruction is this man of lawlessness's future. Thirdly, he's the enemy. He's the one who opposes God. He's always working against God. And fourthly, he's like a climber or a trampler. He's always looking to assert himself above all others, even God, asserting himself as God. He's lawless. He's doomed to destruction. He's the enemy who opposes God. and He's the climber or trampler, clambering over everyone, even God. For me, Jesus' confrontation in the wilderness with Satan springs to mind when Satan tempts Jesus, truly God himself, to bow before him. This is the man of lawlessness. This is, what, this is the picture we have of this man of lawlessness. He asserts himself as God, even over and above the one who truly is God. Now stay with me here. <coughs> Throughout history, there have been moments where this man of lawlessness asserting himself in a temple of God moment seems to have come true. In 169 BC, Antiochus IV, known as Epiphanes, entered the temple in Jerusalem and he erected an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and he sacrificed a pig. And this man of lawlessness asserting himself in the temple of God moment seemed to have come true over 2,000 years ago. It seemed a clear fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, verses 8 and verses 25. The Jews saw another example of the abomination of desolation in the Roman general Pompey, who in 63 BC defeated their nation, captured Jerusalem, desecrated the temple by intruding into the Holy of Holies. Jesus himself was evidently clear that Daniel's prophecy had not been completely fulfilled either in Antiochus or in Pompey. So there's this prophecy about this one. But Jesus seemed to think it wasn't completely fulfilled in these two, but there was a further fulfillment to come. For he repeated or confirmed the prophecy in Daniel, when you see the, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is probably referring to the Jewish war of 66 to 70, probably. 
He had many times predicted God's coming judgment on the Jewish nation and had warned them of the destruction of the temple. Luke certainly understood the abomination of desolation related to the Roman siege of Jerusalem. As for the temple, it was profaned first by Jewish zealots during the war and then by the Roman army in AD 70. So we had this other moment where the Romans came in and had their man of lawlessness in the temple of God moment as well as they set up their images of their emperors and offered sacrifices to them in the Jewish temple. Which brings us to Paul. He possibly had Emperor Caligula in mind as this man of lawlessness since only 10 years had passed since his death. Now, Paul knew that Daniel's prophecies were partially unfulfilled. Consequently, he repeated them, borrowing from Daniel as he did so. Now, you probably didn't catch all that. You didn't really need to catch all that. But the point is, this man of lawlessness that this passage is talking about isn't just a specific person coming in a specific time and place after one specific event. It is symbolic. The man of lawlessness is symbolic. If we are right in suggesting that sitting in God's temple, chapter 2, verse 4, is a symbol of arrogance and a symbol of blasphemy, rather than a specific reference to Herod's temple in Jerusalem, then the rest of the picture Paul paints is of a rebellion which is global rather than central to Rome. Are you with me so far? (laughs) We're not talking about, this is not talking about a specific moment in time, and therefore we ought not assert that this moment, this one moment has happened and come. There has been many moments of this man of lawlessness asserting himself in the temple of God, many moments in history where this seems to have been fulfilled, and yet the scriptures still point us forward to this moment to come for the man of lawlessness. This rebellion of this man, of this rebellion that it talks about here in the passage, is, is global rather than central to Rome, and it's continuing. It's, we, we still live in this rebellion time rather than being a one moment in time. We have this antichrist figure, this man of lawlessness, who is, who is eschatological. He's, a, he's an end time figure as well as being portrayed throughout history. John speaks of an antichrist, the one who would deny the resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, anyone who does not acknowledge Jesus as the risen Lord is antichrist. So this process of reinterpretation and reapplication within the Bible itself, from Daniel through Jesus to Paul and John, it gives us an important flexibility in our understanding. And it prepares us for the conclusion that the Bible prediction of the Antichrist during the course of church history most likely has had and still has fulfilments to come. It's had fulfilments, there's more fulfilments to come of this Antichrist. The man of lawlessness has come in the form of many throughout history. The rebellion as such has been happening for many centuries and will continue today to happen, this rebellion against God. So we're unwise to look for one particular man of lawlessness in such a way as to pronounce all the others false. I know that some today are pronouncing Putin to be the man of lawlessness. He is the man of lawlessness. 
par excellence. Some people are pronouncing the world's billionaires who are gathering together in the name of climate change. They are the men of lawlessness. They're the Antichrist. And hence, Jesus will come. He will return this year, is what some prophecies are saying. If you, if you read around, you'll find it. Satan will definitely be revealed this year, 100%. We can know that for sure because of what's happening in Russia or what's happening with this climate change things. People are saying that. And people have been saying these things throughout history. Look, Antiochus came. He is a man of lawlessness. Jesus is definitely coming back. Look, Roman Pompey, he did this. The Emperor Pompey, he did this. Therefore, there's been many, many moments in history where because of these uh, men of lawlessness types have come and asserted themselves against God, people have said, this is it. This is the one. Jesus is definitely coming back. But he hasn't. Friends, there's lots of teaching in the Bible that we need a good thorough Bible understanding and good theology to, to learn from the Bible. Sometimes in the Bible, it says things really, really, really explicitly. And Matthew chapter 24 is one such moment. I'm going to flick back. You can too if you want. Matthew 24, verse 36 says... <clears throat> About the hour, the day or hour, no one knows. This is talking about the day of the Lord, when Jesus will return. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not even Jesus, but only the Father. It can't be more explicit than that. We do not know when Jesus will return. The hour is unknown to us. We cannot look at world events and go, oh, this is happening there. This is the beginning of the thousand years. Oh, you know, this, is, this is happening, therefore, we cannot know when Jesus will return. Okay, that was the easy bit. <laughs> Verses 6 to 8, they're like the last climb to the summit of the mountain, Okay. And then it's all downhill from there. Are we ready? <clears throat> We're going to think about the coming of the lawless one and also who the restrainer is and who's being restrained. <coughs> Verse 6. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. Now, I've got a little excursus to make here, a little sidetrack called Who's Restraining Who in the Zoo? Okay, who, who's restraining? Who's being restrained? Um, who's holding who back <laughs> exactly? Now, have a think about it for yourself. Who, who do you feel? Who's, who's holding who back? What is holding him back? So maybe, who, who thinks this is the gods holding Satan back? That makes perfect sense. Be bold. Yep, yep. That's the most common understanding of the passage. Um, I'm going to propose a theory 
And I want you to think about it for yourselves. It makes sense to me, um, but I want you to think about it for yourselves. God's holding Satan back is the most common theory, but I don't think it's right because it says in verse 7 that the restrainer is going to be taken out of the way. Now, God is never going to be taken out of the way. He's God. So that theory doesn't stand up, I think. The most common theory among scholars, actually, is that the government of the day in the different countries around the world, the governments of our day are are holding Satan back. Now, I preached on Romans 13 um, in the middle of COVID. That was interesting. About the good role of the government to restrain evil, if you're interested, Martin Lloyd-Jones has done some really great sermons on Romans 13. He says, the best we can expect from the government is to prevent chaos, is to withhold, restrain evil. We can't really expect the government to do any particularly positive good. What they do, which is good, is restrain evil and prevent chaos. So there's a theory that the government is a restrainer who is holding, holding Satan back. However, the government also functions in the man of lawlessness capacity, doesn't it? In so many countries around the world, I'm not suggesting ours, Roman emperors, certainly, that we just thought about, North Korea, Hitler, Stalin, these were not good evil restrainers. These dudes were just lawless themselves, asserting themselves against God. So I don't feel comfortable with the theory that governments are the ones restraining Satan either, even though good governments do hold back chaos. Now, I was pointed to an Anglican Bishop of Sydney, Michael Stead, who wrote a paper on this, and I found this quite compelling, so I want to present this theory to you and see if you find it compelling as well. Michael Stead taught me Zechariah and fourth EG. It was good. So good. Now... He has a different, uncommon theory that I think is right. Remembering at one and the same time we must take our Bible seriously, work hard to understand what the Bible is teaching us, and be humble, particularly when we come to these complicated passages, knowing that you know we are sinners ourselves. So we need a humility as we come to this. We need to work hard with the Bible, and that's what we're going to do. Here's the theory. You ready? Now, verse six. I'm going to give you five translations, five English translations um, of verse 6 on the screen. Okay? And I can't really see the screen from here. The NIV, John, can you read them out for me? Can you read that? And now you know what is holding him back. And the NRSV. And the NRSV. And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. And the ESV. And the Holman. And you know what is currently what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. And the New King James. And now you know what is restraining, so that he may be revealed in his own time. There's a difference. Who spotted the difference? What words missing in the fifth translation? Lockie, him. Next slide. Him's missing. And I think rightly so in the New King James version. I think. Him is an over-translation of the Greek New Testament text. A better translation is restraining. 
So in the context of the whole letter, we can read verse 6 like this. And now you know, Thessalonians, in other words, they experience the oppression, that is, the restraining, until he is revealed in his time. The Thessalonians know the restraining of Satan until he's revealed in his time. Satan is restraining the church, which has biblical support, starting with Paul's last letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you've got a Bible and you want to flick back quickly, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer... I sent to find out about your faith. I'm reading the wrong verse. <laughs> oh, I've lost it. It talks about Satan holding him back. Sorry? 2.18. Thank you. Um, 2.18. Thank you, James. Save me. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. Thanks, James. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, Satan's described as the oppressor of God's people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's described as the adversary of God's people, like a lion prowling around. In Revelation 12 and Revelation 9, Satan's described as the accuser of God's people and the destroyer. And here, I think, he's described as the one holding them back. God's people. The one who sets himself up as God, proclaiming himself to be God, is holding the church back. The church in Thessalonica will be familiar with this idea of Satan restraining because of the first letter. Clearly, Satan's secret and mysterious power is at work in the world. We know that. That's clear from C.S. Lewis's book and from the Bible. He works in ways we don't see and we don't understand. Uh, which is what verse 7 said. So it could read, <clears throat> for the mystery of, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, the oppressor himself, until he's taken from the midst, that is, from the midst of God's people. <clears throat> Clearly the day of the Lord has not yet come because Satan's power continues to be at work in the world and in the church. The rebellion continues. Satan's rebellion against God continues. Satan is restraining God's people. Satan is restraining God's church, at least as much as he's able to do. Ultimately, nothing can stand in the way of God's kingdom coming and growing and being consummated. The, the gates of hell will not overcome. The gates of hell will not be overcome. God's kingdom is growing and, being and will be consummated on the day of the Lord. So Satan is doing his best, but God's kingdom cannot be stopped. On that day, the day of the Lord, all things will be brought to light, including the evil works of the devil. On that day, the devil's work will no longer be mysterious and hidden in the church. He will be exposed. He will stand naked before the wrath of God. And we read... He'll be swiftly dealt with by the breath of the Lord and the splendor of his coming. I read that, I take that to me. He, it won't take fists or biceps or 
It will just take his appearance and his breath and the great Satan will be defeated utterly by the breath of the Lord and the splendour of his coming. So we can reread verse 8 like this. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will destroy with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the manifestation of his coming. So here's our whole passage for you put together in speak we can understand. Does it read well? And does it make sense to you in the context of the Bible? There'll be no resisting the splendour of the king for Satan. He'll be swiftly dealt with. And the day he's revealed is the day he'll be destroyed. The same day, the same moment. There'll be no thousand years of terror. There'll be a revelation and destruction of the evil one. And the day of the Lord, we're told, will arrive unexpectedly like a thief in the night. We don't expect the thief to come. But it will be impossible to miss. And we learned that in chapter 1. The Lord will come with blazing fire and his glorious angels. Satan will be exposed and dealt with. And I think this makes most sense of the passage and the context of the letter. Which is arguably the most complicated in all of Paul's writings. We're on the downhill run now from the summit, okay? Awesome. The day of the Lord will be a wonderful and terrible day. All will rise, some to everlasting joy, but others who've not yet put their trust in Jesus, which I pray isn't you, and if it is, I plead with you to put your trust in Jesus. Those who haven't put their trust in Jesus to everlasting destruction. And again, it seems clear that Paul is speaking generally in verses 9 to 12. He's not speaking about a specific moment in time. What makes much more sense is that he's speaking about this present age. Satan has and will continue to use signs and wonders to try to convince people to believe in his men of lawlessness throughout history. Men of lawlessness talk a big game. They seem impressive. They've got Satan's cunning and guile by their side. But tragically, they don't have Satan by their side, though they may think they do. They believe the lie, and people follow them, and they're deceived, and subsequently they perish. Verse 10, they perish, because instead of believing the truth of God's word, they believe the lie. They have an opportunity to love the truth and be saved, but instead they buy the lie, and they perish. Friends, we need to make sure we're preaching the truth and sharing the truth to help people to not buy the lie. What are the great lies of our age and our culture? Education will save you. Wealth will save you. Green energy will save us. Our world is doomed to destruction. We need more solar panels and windmills. I'm going to be wrong. I've got solar panels on my roof. They're great. They're not going to save us. They're not going to save our world. We need Christ. Another great lie of this, this age is, is the worship of self. A lie we believe is that we have the right to choose our gender or the right to choose to be an animal or the right to choose when we die, as has just been passed through Parliament in New South Wales this past month, tragically. These are God's rights. We are setting ourselves up as God. 
when we think we can choose things that are reserved for him to choose. Our country is increasingly asserting itself against God. And as followers of Jesus, we're responsible to speak the truth into a world that is increasingly against God. It's estimated that in Australia in the past decade or so, 800 babies have been born alive after failed terminations and left to die on their own with no care and no pain relief because they're not considered to be people. Our country is deceived by the evil one. He's at work. And it's being deceived in increasing ways. Our country is making itself out to be God. As Christians, we mustn't forget. Our country's forgotten. Of course they have. We mustn't forget. The devil is at work. And a healthy appreciation of the work of Satan ought not lead us to fear nor dread. We fear the Lord and him alone. But it ought to lead us to prayer and to care for the evil that is happening to those created in God's image in our country and even the world. The consequence of Satan's work is that God sends a delusion so that people continue to believe the lie rather than the truth. They choose Satan's deceit over God's truth. In Romans 1, Paul writes that God gives people over to their sinful desire. This is what you want, you may have it. And that's what we see here too in Thessalonians. God gives them over to their sinful desires. He gives them this delusion and they believe the lie rather than the truth. What a wonderful day it will be when Jesus comes and Satan is defeated once and for all and is completely powerless and no longer has a foothold in our nation and no longer works among us, trying to hold us back from preaching the glorious gospel to a world that needs to hear it. But what a terrible day for those who have not believed the truth and not submitted their lives to Christ. But that won't be our fate, will it? So what do we do until that day comes? Well, we who trust in Jesus and submit our lives and seek to submit our children's lives to his rule, verse 13, We always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you whether by word of mouth or by letter. We are followers of Jesus, loved by the Lord, saved by him. The Holy Spirit works in us. Ephesians teaches us that we are seated in the heavenly realm, spiritually in Christ right now, as well as this pretty warm factory unit. Jesus says that no one can snatch from his hand those whom God has entrusted to him. God has declared and sealed us with the Holy Spirit that on that last day we will be called into heavenly dwellings with our Lord Jesus Christ, praise God. Until that day, brothers and sisters, 
Stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings that were passed down to us from the apostles. You may suffer in Jesus' name. I pray that you do. I pray that I do. I pray that we may have the opportunity to glorify Christ in suffering. I pray that we might have the opportunity to grow in our faith through suffering. Our willingness to suffer in Jesus' name brings him glory and God strengthens our faith through suffering. And you will stand firm if you hold fast to his teaching. Are you holding fast to the teachings? You're all here. That's great. That's a great step to holding fast. So my answer, my guess is yes, you are holding fast to his teaching. Very two quick things to finish. What's this mean for us tonight? Satan is roaring like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is. And his greatest trick is to encourage you to ignore him or forget that he even exists as you are distracted by the trappings of our world. There's so many things in Sydney to distract us from the realities, the spiritual realities. Don't get distracted. Satan is at work, but Jesus is more powerful. His word will protect us. Pray for one another. Pray for spiritual protection over one another. And please, pray for leaders. Pray for Ben, pray for John, pray for me, pray for your ministry leaders, pray for your growth group leaders. Pray for youth group leaders. Pray for children's ministry leaders. Why? Because the only thing better than taking down a church member for Satan is taking down a church leader. Because that has an even greater impact. It does more damage. Pray for one another. Pray for the leaders of your church. Satan is seeking to restrain us. but We have God's Holy Spirit at work within us so we can stand firm. So secondly, stand firm. Like you do in the waves at the beach, it's an active thing, it's not a passive thing. Stand firm against the advances of the evil one. Be grounded in God's word and Christian fellowship so that you will stand firm on that day. You are all needed to build the body that is our church. You are all needed to help one another to stay on the right track, to live for Christ, to resist the devil, to not give in to temptation. Many years ago, Lara, my wife, and I went to Africa and we actually drove right through the middle. Next slide, thanks. We actually drove through the middle of the Great Migration. Two million zebra and wildebeest migrate up through Africa every year and we drove through the middle of it. It was so cool. These zebra and wildebeest. Zebra and wildebeest have a symbiotic relationship. They work together. You see, zebra have really great eyesight and wildebeest have a really great sense of hearing and both of them are a really tasty meal for lions. So they work together to protect one another from his evil that is prowling around looking for something to devour. Hold fast to the teachings. Protect one another. Pray for one another that we might resist Satan together. Let me conclude by praying Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians for us all. Let's pray. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts 
and strengthen you in every good deed and word. In the name of Jesus, amen.